0: truths. I'd ask you to turn with me tonight in fir- to 1 Corinthians, to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Continuing our study in the evenings of Major questions in the Bible, and we've come to this wonderful chapter of Scripture. We'll begin reading from verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. Let us hear the word of God. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption Inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. End our reading there. Trust the Lord to bless the word to our souls. Let's again just ask for his help as we seek to hear from him. Our Heavenly Father, we come now with thy word open, asking for the Spirit's power in the preaching of the word of God. Lord, we ask that you would make thy word effectual to us. Lord, we are thankful that it is the living word of the living God. But Lord, we need thee to use this living word to quicken us. For our souls so often cleave to the dust. Lord, help us. Help me. Oh God, help me to exalt Christ. Help me to preach forth the Christ of the scriptures. The Christ of God. And may uh, may all of us be given the grace and the help of the Spirit to rightly hear and to behold the Lamb of God. Please hear our prayers, for we ask them in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Amen. Well, the text I draw your attention to is verse 55. We read it together. You can see the questions. Oh, death! Where is thy sting, O grave? Where is thy victory? This is another major question in the Bible, and it is a glorious question. It is one that should fill our hearts with praise, thanksgiving, and confidence as we meditate upon it tonight. We are coming to deal with the subject of death in a limited way not in a comprehensive way and really when we're coming to this you can just see from the text really the emphasis of the apostle on death on the grave and death is a reality for all of us it's a reality that we face in this world death will come to most of us and it is everywhere. It's a very difficult thing, death. It is not a subject that we typically like to discuss or like to meditate on. It is hard for us to think about parting with this world in some respect. And it's hard for us to think about parting with those in this world. But the glory of this text is that it brings us to consider that death is defeated for the Christian. And that will be our primary focus as we think about this tonight. For Christians, death is really the beginning of true life. So that there is an absolute reverse of what death brought after the fall. But really, as you look at this text, you immediately see that all Christians have a relationship to death. The apostle speaks really on behalf of all Christians when he says those words, when he asks these questions. And so, that is what I want us to consider tonight. This text under the title, The Christian's relationship with death. The Christian's relationship with death. And the first thing I want us to see here is that it is a personal relationship. It is a personal relationship. The apostle is almost speaking to death as if death and the grave are a person. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave. Where is thy victory? He speaks almost in a taunting way to death, as if death is a person. And really, death and grave uh, refer to the process of death and the place in which our bodies go after death. And so as we think about the fact that it is a personal relationship that Christians have with death, for the apostle speaks in a personal manner to death, We want to think about, first of all, that most Christians will personally experience death. Most Christians will personally experience death. It is the predominant experience of all people. I don't have to take you to book, chapter, and verse to prove that to you. You are not long in this world before you realize the prevalence of death, that it is all around us it's something that we learn about simply by living in this world it's the predominant experience of all people and yet we also see as it relates to christians really everyone but especially christians it is a varying experience it's predominantly what we're all going to experience but it varies very widely in what we will experience not all of god's people face death in the same manner You just think about all the different ways that that people die in the world, including Christians. And just for example, you think of some of the examples we have in Scripture. You think of Stephen. Stephen comes on the scene, as it were, in Acts 6. And almost immediately, he he has great light, great insight into the Scriptures. He preaches this wonderful Christ-centered sermon. In Acts chapter 7, and then he's immediately stoned and taken out of this world, taken home to be with the Lord. So his death is is almost immediate. We don't know exactly when he's converted, but presumably he was one of those that the apostles preached to in the day of Pentecost or shortly thereafter and was converted then. But it seems almost immediate with Stephen. But then you think of Paul. And with Paul, it seems like you just can't kill him. <laughs> All the things he goes through, he, you know, notably in Acts chapter 14 verses 19 and 20 where they, they seek to stop the people from worshiping them after they've preached. They think that he and Barnabas, if I recall correctly, are, are gods of some sort and he, he calls them to stop and then the Jews come and they entice the people against him and they stone him and drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. And then the next verse says the disciples come, and he he rises up, and and goes on. Now no doubt he had severe injuries, but they left him for dead, which means Paul experienced a horrific close call to death, and yet the Lord was not pleased for him yet to die. And so it seems like you can't kill him, and that we know eventually he does die. Uh, Tradition tells us that he died at Rome, uh, beheaded, though that may not be the case. But still, you see the variety of experience. Stephen is stoned and almost immediately is taken out. Paul goes on, and we know that he gets beaten, and he gets bruised, and he gets whipped, and all kinds of things. And people are always trying to kill him, (laughs) and yet they can't. But then, consider also, even broader than that, as we think about how Variable this experience is. The people we read about in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, in Hebrews 11, verse 32, we'll just read that portion through 38. Paul writing, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. Were tempted. Were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Now I read that because it shows the variety in which, in ways, in which the Lord's people have died. And yet, the significant thing about all of that is that death was but their entrance into glory. Amen. That when we read that, we, it does bring a certain amount of sobriety, and it should, because the level of persecution we face today is, is nothing compared to what some people in the world face today and as well as what the church has faced in the past. But it can happen again. And many would have us believe it will happen again here in this country. But be that as it may, whatever the case, it is a varying experience that most Christians will face. But also, it is not a required experience. As we think about this being the, a personal experience that most Christians will have, It's not a required experience. If you look back in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the Apostle Paul actually says there verse 51 Behold I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep. In other words noting the fact that not all Christians are going to die. That Whoever is alive when the Lord returns will not die, but they will be changed. And so it's not a required experience. And we know this to be true from the Old Testament as well. You have Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5, he walked with God and he was not, for the Lord took him. You have Elijah, who the chariots of God come down and take him into heaven. Those men were not required to go through the experience of death. And that's significant because, we'll look at this more in a little while, but that's significant because it shows that death is not a requirement for the Christian because Christ has satisfied the justice of God in relation to death. The wages of sin is death. Christ has satisfied the wrath of God upon our sin. As I said, we'll get to that more in just a little while. But, as I said, most Christians will personally experience death. But also here, as we think about it being a personal relationship, all Christians will personally interact with death. Most will personally experience it, but all Christians will personally interact with death. And this is not something we like to think about. But this interaction will bring sorrow. It will bring sorrow. We will sorrow for those who die out of Christ. We will sorrow for those who die in Christ. Just because someone's a Christian doesn't mean we don't sorrow when they die. And just even more so when someone we know dies out of the Lord, we sorrow. It brings sorrow. And so even though we come to this text and it is a glorious text and it does speak of the victory of the Christian over death, it does not mean that there is not sorrow in relation to death. And I just take the time to say this because it is appropriate that when we think of death, there is an appropriate amount of sorrow. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear to those in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 4:13. he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, speaking of Christians that have died, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. He doesn't tell them not to sorrow, but don't sorrow without hope for them. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And so this interaction that we will all have will bring sorrow. Death is the reality of our world. It's something we have to deal with, and it brings sorrow. And many of, many of you here know plenty about it. To the lost as well as to the saved. Every time we have an interaction with death, which we inevitably will in this world, it's always a reminder to preach the gospel to people. To lost people, because we know that outside of Christ, they'll perish for eternity. But also to the saved, because Paul Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord wherefore comfort one another with these words that's the point that I wanted to that you to get there that as we all personally interact with death death always provides an opportunity for us to preach the gospel to one another and it's an opportunity we don't want to miss. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. What words? The words he was just using. The words of the, that part of the gospel that gives us hope of the resurrection. Have you ever noticed that it seems always in, in the scriptures, the reference to Christians who are dead, it says they're asleep. It says they're asleep, not dead. It doesn't use that language in that sense, in so many passages. And the reason is, is because of the reality of the resurrection that is coming. The apostle is is drawing us to consider the fact that those who die in the Lord, they're just awaiting their resurrection in the Lord. And so, this interaction should always be, as well, a reminder of the brevity of life. That's what death always is. It's a reminder of the brevity of life. As James says, our life is but a vapor. Our life is but a vapor. And so it is a personal relationship. Something most will experience and something that all personally interact with. But, secondly, it is a purposeful relationship relationship not only a personal relationship but a purposeful relationship the apostle says "O death where is thy sting O grave where is thy victory and he's he's drawing us to consider there was a purpose in death before that has been dulled that has been taken away where is thy sting where is thy victory So death had a purpose, we read of it tonight in the providence of God in Genesis 3, that it was punishment for sin. And yet, we see here that that purpose has been reversed. And so as we think about it being a purposeful relationship, note first with me that its purpose is not punishment for sin. Its purpose is not punishment for sin. The apostle says, Where is thy sting? Where is thy victory? The word sting has the idea of tip or point. Almost like a sword with a point on it. And the apostle saying, where is your point? Where is it now? It's been blunted, in other words. And so when a Christian dies, this is the point here. When a Christian dies, they are not receiving God's wrath. This is very important for us to remember. Remember. To always keep this in view. That when a Christian dies they are not receiving God's wrath. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So we cannot say that when a Christian dies it's because of sin. Because to say that is to go against what we know to be true of the gospel. That Christ has made an end of all our sins. That He has fully satisfied the wrath of God upon our sins. His satisfaction of God's wrath is sufficient. Christians don't have to die in order to complete the process. This is very clear again from Romans 8. Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. In other words, the work of Christ is complete. And so its purpose is not punishment for sin because it cannot be the wrath of God coming out on a Christian. But also here, Its purpose can include God's chastening grace. It's not punishment for sin, but its purpose can include God's chastening grace. This is a necessary difference. And I trust you see the difference in what I'm going to say. There's a necessary difference between judicial punishment and fatherly chastisement. The Lord does not judicially punish a Christian because Christ has received all judicial punishment. But the Lord does, as a father who loves his children, chastise his people. And that is grace. That is not wrath, not law. That is grace. And that is, I just wanted to show you the reality of God's fatherly displeasure with Christians because some would begin to say, well, but isn't God pleased with us in Christ? Isn't Don't we always have His favor? And there's a sense in which, yes, that is true. Legally, that is true. We always have the favor of God as it relates to our position before Him in our union with Christ. And yet, in our earthly life and our earthly experience, we do bring on us God's fatherly displeasure. Hebrews 12, 5. For the Apostle Paul writes, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, quoting Proverbs, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he of whom the Father whom the Father chasteneth not. But if ye be without chastisement, wherefore all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. So that's the reality. There is a fatherly chastisement with Christians. And to such a degree is this true that it can be manifested at times in a very serious way such as death. Not to go back into dealing with the Lord's table but the passage does serve to illustrate the point to show you the truth that in 1 Corinthians 11 that which we read of earlier concerning the the damnation or the judgment that that one will bring on himself to eat unworthily from the table the shocking thing about that passage is that it's referring primarily it seems to those who know the Lord in that context and even though the term damnation or judgment is used, we know that in the greater context that that's referring to chastisement. It can't be referring to judicial punishment because of other passages. And so we see the severity at which, with which God will, will deal with us as children that sometimes, out of love, by His grace, He will sometimes take a believer out of the world. The apostle says that they are asleep in that passage. He says, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. And that's what he's referring to. That the Lord had actually taken them out of the world. And so, its purpose can include God's fatherly chastisement, chastening grace. But thirdly here, consider that its purpose is always God's sanctifying grace. Not only, as we think about it being purposeful, is its purpose not sin. Its purpose includes God's chastening grace. Its purpose is always God's sanctifying grace. Always sanctifying grace. It is a part of being conformed to Christ. We know that. All things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, being predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. And our, our Westminster Larger Catechism is very helpful in dealing with this very question. In question 85, they ask, Death, being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death? seeing all their sins are forgiven in Christ? The answer, the righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, and even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery, and, make, and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. Amen. It's a very helpful question. One of the reasons I, I so enjoy reading uh, through the larger catechism and the shorter because they deal with those kinds of questions. That though they're very theological, they become very practical. When you are facing death or when you are dealing with that question of why. Christians die. And so it is a part of being conformed to Christ. It is a test of our faith. As as a Christian approaches death, it is a test of our faith. It It is to try us in order to strengthen us, in order to sanctify us. It is said of John Knox, if you don't know who John Knox is, I'm sure everyone here does, but a mighty man of God The Scottish Reformer. And you think about the life of John Knox and how much of a godly man he was, how strong he was in the faith, and yet we're told of him that when he was nearing the end of his life on his deathbed, he became sorely afflicted with lack of assurance of his salvation that he began to really struggle and the devil began to torment him for him to question whether he was in Christ. And yet, by the end of that experience, before Knox died, he called out to the person at his bedside. He asked for him to read me the verse where my soul first cast anchor, which was John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And the Lord used that verse in Knox to bolster his faith so that he faced death in confidence that he was going to be with Christ. I use that to illustrate the fact that the strongest of saints, the most godly of, of men and women can severely struggle when they come to personally face death. And so it's important to remember that God is going to keep you even when you come to that point. No less of a man than John Knox faced such things we will face such things, but God will use it. You think just of that whole thing, him allowing the devil to tempt Knox in that way, and yet, to test him in that way, and yet, it ended with Knox being stronger in his faith. So it is a part of being conformed to Christ. But also, it is an act of merciful love. When the Christian faces death, it is an act of merciful love it's the love of God we don't often think about it that way but it is I share this with you from Isaiah 55 Isaiah 55 or rather 57 excuse me 57 verse 1 where we read the righteous perisheth and no man layeth it to heart and merciful men are taken away None considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Now you think about what that text is saying. The righteous, merciful men taken away. None considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. We don't often, at least most of us, don't often think about it that way. We don't often think about death being a manifestation of the merciful love of God. To one of his people. That he is taking them away from the evil that is to come. That he's delivering them from further afflictions. Or he's delivering them from some catastrophe that's going to come upon the world. To come upon their area. The Lord takes them away from the evil to come. And you think about this. It struck me really, I guess, for the first time when I was thinking about this relation to the prayer that our Lord tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where we pray for the Lord to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from evil. I'd never thought about it in that light before. But that the fact that when you pray that, included in that deliverance, could very well be. The means that the Lord uses, which is death, to deliver us from evil. It is an act of merciful love from God as He sanctifies us. It frees us from corruption. That's what Paul says. It frees us from corruption. That whether we are changed at the coming of Christ or whether we are changed in our death, at least partly changed, awaiting the full glorification. But we are changed. We are brought out of corruption in terms of our souls. So it sanctifies us in all these ways. And the final way that I would note that it sanctifies us is it stirs us to service. Whenever we face death, and even just meditating on death, it stirs us to service. Robert Murray McShane is notable in this regard for it is said of him that it seemed like he always had on his mind John 9, 4 which says the night cometh when no man can work. It is said of McShane that it seemed like he just walked in that text. The night cometh. So that he gave himself wholeheartedly to the work of God and then he dies at 29. Such a short life. And yet, such, such a move of God through that man. And, and what he was blessed and owned of God to be able to do in his day. Yet, dies at 29. The night cometh. Knowing our time may be short on this earth. It should, it should stir us to service. <laughs> It should stir us all the more to just give ourselves to the work of God. That doesn't mean we neglect our temporal affairs, but it means that we, we do everything in light of that reality. We, we teach children the Bible. We, we admonish one another in the Lord. We do everything in light of the fact that I may not be here tomorrow. It's very important to take that to heart, that it stirs us to service. But thirdly, and finally, it is an empowering relationship. It is an empowering relationship. The Apostle Paul says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There is power in those words. There's confidence in those words. As I said, it's as he's saying, Death, you have a blunted sword. There's nothing you can do to me. And so as we think about it being an empowering relationship, we see that it is empowering in light of Christ's death. It is empowering in light of Christ's death. For he goes on, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is empowering in light of Christ's death. And so what are we to do when we consider what the Apostle is saying here? Why should we have confidence when we come to think about these questions? And why can we say the very same thing to death? Because when we read this language, we are to behold the way that Christ died. He died confidently. He died knowing that He was going to be raised from the dead. And so in that, we are to imitate the way he died. By the grace of God, we are to imitate that. To look unto him who has gone before us, who has led the way into confident death. So it is empowering in light of Christ's death, which giveth us the victory, a victorious death that we are to enter into. It is empowering also in light of Christ's resurrection. That's what this whole chapter is about. The reality of the resurrection. And we are given the victory through Jesus Christ because not only is He dead, but is He risen. And so when we think about this question, we are to behold the reality of the resurrection. And just to note here in this connection, Matthew. Chapter 27, and the language that is used in Matthew 27 is so helpful as you think about the resurrection. In Matthew 27, verse 62. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that this, that, the, that, that deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now you think about that language. Make it as sure as ye can and a Roman watch, and those men were liable to, they were subject to execution if they did not fulfill their tasks. If anyone was allowed to get into that tomb and steal the body of Christ, those men would have been put to death. Their lives are on the line. They're Roman soldiers. They're trained extensively in warfare. Make it as sure as you can. And yet, what happens? Our Lord Jesus Christ confidently, sovereignly, victoriously comes forth from the tomb. So that for all, for the rest of the history of mankind, no one can use such an argument and say, oh, his body was stolen. Which is some of what the Jews say today. And yet it's impossible it's so clear that it would have been impossible for that to happen. The Lord is risen, and so we behold the reality of His resurrection, and that language in Matthew 27 is very helpful in that regard. And so, as we behold it, what do you do with that beholding? Again, you, you turn it to yourself and you trust that you will rise as He rose. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 17 in his argument in this chapter. If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This, the same confidence that our Lord Jesus Christ had when facing death is the confidence that we should have, trusting that we will be raised from the dead. When you read Psalm 16, and the Lord says, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now that explicitly refers to the fact that Christ's body saw no corruption. It, that he, he saw no corruption in any way. And we know that our bodies will face a degree of corruption, but there is a measure in which we can apply that text to the reality that though your skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's what Job said. That though the body is, is destroyed and, and withers away in the ground, yet it will be raised and made new, no matter what the degree to which it's destroyed. That's why Hebrews 11 is so important, because it says they were sawn asunder. It, it tells us all kinds of ways that these Christians were destroyed from the earth, and yet we know that each and every one of their bodies is going to be raised and restored. No matter what kind of death they experience. It is empowering in light of Christ's resurrection. And lastly here, it is empowering because of the Christian's relationship with Christ. That's what it all comes down to. This, This will mean nothing to you, this message will mean nothing to you if you are not in a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not cultivating assurance of that relationship, when we read this text, when we read this question and we enter into the confidence that Paul expresses here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are to enter in to him beholding his union with Christ, because that's where this all flows from. He's not just pulling something out of thin air. He, he's drawing our attention to the fact that we are so united to Christ. That this is so certain. And so as you behold your union with Him, you are to be bold because of your union with Him. And you can say these words, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? That becomes so crucial because none of us know what a day may bring forth. We don't know when our last may be. And we need to be able to say in the words of the hymn that we sang earlier, death is but my entrance into glory. That's all it is. My entrance into glory. Because as Paul lays out in Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And He includes death and perils and swords and all manner of other things. And so I ask you as we close in considering this question, do you know this Christ? Do you know the Christ that brings such confidence to His people? Do you know Him? Be certain That you know Him. Be certain of your union with Him. Cultivate your knowledge of that union. Because this is the Christ. The Christ of the Scriptures. Not not the false Christ that is preached in this world. Not the Jesus that is cast about in the public domain. But the Christ of the Scriptures. That's the Christ that counts when you consider the subject of death. I trust if you do not know Him or if any of you watching online do not know Him, you will contact or you will speak to me. You will speak to someone about the state of your soul. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the Word of God. We are grateful to You, Lord, for how You bolster the Christian's confidence. Lord, how You give us so much to consider about death, so that we, by the grace of God, will not fear death, Oh God, that we would not fear what man can do to us. Lord, that we wouldn't fear sharing the gospel with those who threaten to kill us. Because we know that the sting of death has been taken away. Lord, we pray, give us all that confidence. Give me that confidence, Lord. Give us all that assurance of our salvation in Christ, to know that nothing, not even death, will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, if there is anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is anyone watching on that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask Thee, O God, to move upon that soul and to save them. We ask Thee to stir their hearts, to call upon Thee, and to enter in to the promises of God that Thou hast said are yea and amen in Christ. O Lord, hear our prayers. Receive our thanks. Bless the Word. O God, burn away the chaff. Preserve only the wheat in all of our minds. Help us to leave this place with renewed minds and joyful hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.